Thank you for downloading the Bristol Lectures podcast brought to you by UE Bristol. In this podcast, we are joined by Aisha Thomas, Educational Consultant for Representation Matters. Uh, welcome to the Distinguished Address series at UE Bristol, uh, which provides an opportunity to hear unique perspectives, insights um, from changemakers, activists and entrepreneurs and people who have been achieved amazing things um, in Bristol and beyond. This is the first conversational style address here at UE Bristol and I'm honoured to be joined by Aisha Thomas to discuss anti-racist practice, equity, justice and liberation. Uh, my name is Dr Craig Johnson. I'm a senior lecturer in criminology here at UE Bristol. I am the co-founder of the Alliance of Working Class Academics and, like Aisha, I'm working towards challenging uh, social norms, hierarchy, bias, social justice. And my current research area is on um, an issue of social justice linked to school exclusions and social justice through alternative provisions. So I'm going to run through just briefly some housekeeping um, that we need to look at today, and that's for submitting some questions. Basically, the event schedule um, starting now. Um, I will then run through some questions with Aisha and we'll hopefully have a thought-provoking discussion at um, roughly um, 6.35, so around five minutes from now. We will invite you some to put some questions in. I'll tell you how to do that in just a second. And then we'll thank you and close around um, 7.30, depending on questions. And hopefully that by that time um, will be invigorated. So in terms of submitting questions to this system, you can submit questions throughout the event using the Q&A box. Um, questions are moderated. So not all questions will appear, but they will be moderated. We can ask a handful of questions to Aisha. Um, these will be published and answered again. begins. Audience members can um, like a question. So if you particularly like a question, you would like Aisha to answer that question or for us to discuss that, then um, you would just like that and that would boost that question up there as well. But please be viewing the event in a standard mode or not full screen in order to do that. We would also encourage you to please get involved on Twitter using the hashtag uh, Bristol Lectures, so hashtag Bristol Lectures. And um, of course, we would appreciate if you could tweet comments uh, as well. So without further ado, I would like to introduce uh, Aisha. I'm very honored to introduce Aisha Thomas. I first met Aisha at a recent event, which I had organized the social barriers. I was amazed that she had said yes, um, because she was highly recommended, the first person that was recommended in Bristol, because I really don't know Bristol as a new academic here at UE. Um, she was described by her peers, and I think this is really, really important to say, as a rising star um, in Bristol. She's the founder and director of Representation Matters. Aisha studied law. For Napithne saw her move into education and become assistant principal at Ennis City um, Secondary School in Bristol, specialising in equality, diversity and inclusion. Aisha has advocated for equitable representation in education and across the wider world. Her work has included BBC documentaries about the lack of black teachers in Bristol, filming a 2019 TED Talk, which I highly recommend, Why Represent Really Matters, uh, and 2002 launched her organisation, Representation Matters, which we'll be hopefully hearing a little bit about tonight. So she, um, she won a positive role model for Wraith Nest and the Bristol Diversity Award 2020, um, and in 2021 received Special Recognition Award from Bristol Black History Month magazine and two 2021 Batten Awards Campaigner of the Year. 
Um, and of course, this year, or at least 2002, saw Aisha win the Rise Awards Entrepreneur. Aisha is also a university guest lecturer, and her debut book, Becoming an Anti-Racist Educator, was released in 2022. So I'm sure we're going to touch on that. So welcome, Aisha. Um, I have been given a list of questions, which I've been asked to run through. So I think firstly, let's um, perhaps begin by talking about you and your journey. So um, I'm sure people, as I mentioned before, are aware of your work, but excellent work, really. BBC documentaries, um, podcasts, certainly I enjoyed those, advocacy work, and general work through Representation Matters. But throughout all of that was a key theme was your ability to challenge social injustice, uh, both on race and inequalities of all kinds. So why is representation such an important theme in your life and indeed throughout most of your work? So first of all, thank you very much for having me here. I feel very honoured to be the first speaker. So I really appreciate the audience. Thank you for those who are listening. And thank you very much, Craig, for hosting our conversation today. Now, in terms of representation, it's funny because it comes up all of the time. And what's really important for me is to think about the root, the cause and the seed. Where did this really originate from? And the reality is it didn't originate from me. It originated from a chance meeting with a young man in prison who really talked to me about the fact that he didn't see any representation of significance that looked like him. So I've got this young man racialized as black. He meets me as somebody who's helping him to get back into the community. And he stops me in one of the conversations and he simply says to me, perhaps if you were my teacher, I wouldn't be in prison today. And I didn't quite get what that meant at the time. I, I was almost confused by what he was was talking about the fact that if only the representation he saw was positive, who were racialized as white, who were in positions of power, then perhaps he did. He talked a lot about the fact that from his perspective, was he saw examples of black people in sport, people in prison, and that's the pathway he ended with. But what he did, representation of what it would be to be a black man. So it made me really think about it's not just about representation in terms of what is the negative representation that young people would be experiencing that could put them on the wrong trajectory. That was the difference. I, I had to leave my legal career behind because they were on the pathway. It was about could I change their trajectory before they even began Again, representation and seeing yourself, seeing that visual manifestation of what you could possibly be was the absolute beginnings of how I began my journey of challenging the social injustice that I could see, particularly black and brown. Excellent. I mean, I think one of the things that um, came through that with particular stories, I noticed there's maybe a little bit of a connection on, on the line here. Um, is the idea of a role model. Do you believe that that young person, for example, that you were describing, saw you as a role model or were you talking more openly about um, the system itself and, and that perhaps more people like yourself would be and it should be involved in your life as you talked about before? I think we have to be quite mindful about terms like role model because sometimes they can be quite problematic and almost tokenistic to an extent. But what I will say that certainly for him, I think what it signified was an injustice in the system that he didn't even realize was there. So when I walked into that prison visiting hall, he thought I was somebody's mum. 
or someone's auntie or someone's friend. He didn't for one moment think I was in a position of significance or power. And that's what was really my kind of first realization of how important representation and seeing somebody that might look like you in a position of power, how that could change your trajectory. He had never witnessed that before. He'd never seen that before. And that made me really realize that this isn't just about a tokenistic idea of a celebrity or somebody in the past who's been a historical figure who may have made a significant difference. That's that's brilliant. But there was something about someone who was actually at arm's length, someone I could touch, experience and relate to, who saw themselves, saw an opportunity, saw, saw a difference in what they'd ever experienced before, and that they could therefore perhaps change the pathway that they were on. And that structural realization for him was also there for me. And I think that the representation within the system in all facets of society is often lacking. And our question is, do we allow our children to have the same role models that perpetuate the same ideologies and perhaps enhance the same stereotypes? Or do we realize that we need to see it in every facet of society if we genuinely want to dismantle some of the racial inequalities that we currently see? And I completely agree with the role models. Certainly in the research that I'm looking at on masculinity, it's used frequently. And they often refer to football players at a distance as being role models. And we know statistically, and there was recent research came out about that, how difficult it is to become a professional football player. And even if you do make it, um, it can be quite devastating to, to your career. So role models are hugely problematic, but we see this used all the time, almost without any criticism. Um, without thinking about the consequences of the failure that might be attached to um, being unable to emulate these role models. So role models, I think the terminology would be really quite challenging and needs to be changed, I think. So if we move on just quickly, I mean, one question that came up was, do you have any particular role models? Is there anybody that you would look up to and you would see as a... I probably wouldn't you? use the word... I probably wouldn't use the word role model, but I would certainly talk about people of inspiration. And I think people who have guided my pathway and journey. So when I think about someone like Angela Davis, or I think about Bell Hooks, and I'm certainly thinking about my current doctoral journey. And I think about the academics and scholars that have led the pathway before me to be able to see not just a representation of a woman, but representation of black women who are leading a pathway for me, it's allowing me to go, this is possible. This is aspiration there. When I think about everyday heroes, whether it's Yvonne Colony, the first black female head teacher in England, or Betty Campbell, the first black female head teacher in Wales, I didn't even know they existed until I started doing this work. I operated as an assistant principal and didn't even know who these head teachers were. But when I think about my everyday inspiration, most importantly for me, it's the children, because the children that I'm seeing in this generation, they're different. They're not asking for permission to change. They're saying the world needs to change and you need to take care of us. And they are actively going out and going, this is what it should look like. And whilst the generations of the past may have paved an opportunity, they are not about to let this opportunity go. And there's something very exciting about the generation that's coming through now, which is absolutely kind of exciting the inspiration within me to keep going so I'm ready to pass on that baton to those who are coming up behind me. And I would agree 100%. I mean, it's actually, and it'd be quite challenging, I think, for people my age for particular, who know, young people are actually more inspirational, perhaps, or at least inspiring me in different ways and teaching me about things that I wouldn't even consider. And you're absolutely right to say the generation coming through now. Um, and I think there will be a, a big change probably in 10 to 20 years, but it'll be, it's 
going to be a lot slower, I think, and there's quite a lot of resistance in the moment for that. So moving on then to um, perhaps another kind of question. So you've mentioned some poignant uh, and, and some potentially traumatic aspects in terms of young people's experience and, and your experiences. Um, and I just wondered, um, how do you stay resilient? And that's one of those words I think is maybe worth discussing because when I got this list of questions, I toyed with this idea, is resilience the, one, the word we want to use? It has been overused and it also means that you're putting up with certain types of behavior, certain types of biases. So how do you stay resilient um, when you experience racism and discrimination, not only just yourself potentially, but also the people you see around you? I think it's an important point that we have to clarify when we talk about resilience and what resilience means for different racialized communities. And I'm very aware that I've grown up very much with a mother who was very much focused on, you know, Aisha, you have to be resilient. You have to understand the racial inequalities that exist. You have to understand structural white supremacy. You need to understand that you are going to work five times harder or four times harder than your counterparts just to get the same. So she was kind of trying to instill in me this idea of resilience because you're going to need it to make it. But what my concern has been certainly over time and the more that I began to do this work and certainly when I'm in particular spaces where I am minoritized is I'm beginning to realize that we are unintentionally perpetuating an ideology and a continuation that there is an expectation that because you are racialized as black, you will put up with more, that you can take more, that you can handle more. And actually that is a very dangerous um, perspective and understanding for, to have. And it puts a lot of disproportionate um, burden essentially on those racialized as black in terms of their mental health and well-being. And what we don't sometimes realize is actually the historical link to this and actually enslavement and where some of these initial ideologies came from. I do some work on race science, particularly with my work with the NHS. And one of the things that we were particularly looking at is the fact that when you have this ideology that black people can work harder, last longer, which is why many of them were put out into the, the field as slaves, that mentality, although black people are not physically being put in, out to, into the cotton fields in this moment in time, that same concept of you will work harder and you will do more and you can manage more, that element of resilience is still there, but from a mental capacity. And we have to be very mindful of that. So one of the things that I've had to learn, certainly for myself, is measuring my own mental health and well-being and having boundaries. I'm very much an open advocate of therapy. So I'm, I do this work but I also have a therapist. I have a black female therapist because I want that connection and understanding of my gender and also my race, that intersectionality. I'm also very aware of this idea of, is my cup too full? Do I need to take a break? Am I being boundaried enough? And actually, am I allowing a disproportionate burden? So I think whilst resilience to an extent can be a useful ideology, we have to understand the problematic nature if we keep projecting resilience on a particular group of people and the disproportionate impact that may therefore have on their well-being and the ability for them to do the work. How often do you hear that same kind of almost conversation when talking about those racialized as white and using that same element of resilience in the race conversation? It's, it's articulated in a different way. So I'm not so much anti the word resilience, I'm anti the way in which the word resilience is used and in what context. 
And it's really important, particularly for those racialized as black, when we think about the work around anti-blackness, that they're really looking after their mental health and well-being. And that's something I'm absolutely an advocate for. We have to look after the trauma that we are vicariously experiencing, even through just doing the work and wanting to make a commitment to change. So that idea of trauma, and that's another one of the words that's sort of floating around. And it's one of these concepts, these ideas that, that are quite rare, I think, in a lot of academic terms where they sort of take over everything. Um, and people are using it in films and movies um, in everyday life and associate trauma to small events, potentially, or quite large events. Um, and linking in with the idea of intersectionality, how trauma might mean something different, certainly in my research, to someone from a working class background who's expected to be tough, come from a tough neighbourhood. So I wondered if the word trauma itself is useful, is problematic, um, or, or would you want to change that word um, in your, you know, when you're discussing that? So one of the interesting things, I've been researching the use of the word trauma. And I was particularly looking at the way in which trauma is attached to certain professions. So the idea that as a police officer, you have traumatic experiences. As a paramedic, you might have traumatic experiences. But one of the things I was looking at is what is the traumatic potential experience of perhaps a black teacher teaching content about enslavement? And whilst trauma to an extent can be um, about this physical moment or experience that's happening in real time and now and maybe happening to you, there is a body of work that's talking about the vicarious trauma that someone may experience by watching the lived experience of someone that looks like them and the impact that that's having on them as an individual. And we sometimes liken that to what we call, certainly at Representation Matters, emotional activation. And is actually what feelings and emotions are being evoked and causing me harm and pain through the work that I'm having to deliver, the conversations I'm having to have, the, the space I'm having to hold. And I think there's a lot more work to be done. You know, when we began to see this whole notion in education about ACEs and trauma-informed practice, and yet racism wasn't there as an ACE, how, how can that experience not be considered as a traumatic experience, perhaps that a child or a person may go through? Because racism of the physicality is one thing, but actually the racism that experiences in the mind can still it cause suicide can still cause anxiety, can still cause depression, can still cause all the other same elements of concern and harm. But if we won't even recognize that racism in itself is causing trauma, it feels like it's been removed from the conversation because it doesn't have the definition of trauma that those in the majority might perceive it to be. So I think it is a word of use, but it also needs value and understanding for how it's projected again upon different racialized communities. And again, that's the importance of the work that you're doing, and as well as some of the scholars um, that I'm sure you're reading and, and, and uses references. Again, that's that racial lens onto particular popular concepts, um, as well as intersectionality, because I know that we have mentioned before this idea of poverty not even being linked to trauma in different ways. So I think it's, it's worth examining, it's worth looking at, at both positively and, and critically. So just moving on um, quickly to representation matters, if you don't mind. Um, so in the sort of brief discussion that we've had tonight, representation could be seen as an individual or a collective task that moves beyond just thinking about the world, it's actually doing something about it or bringing some sort of practical tools and for me, outside of your own particular work, representation matters. Um, it sort of encapsulates that. So um, I just wondered if before we could go over that, 
in what ways can individual educators change the narrative of representation before so obviously before we talk about the representation matters and the excellent work that goes on there for those people who are listening tonight or perhaps watching tonight how can how can individual educators change um the narrative of what we what you would perceive as being representation the number one thing that we talk about certainly when we do our work is this idea of holding the mirror and representation is quite interesting because people often talk about this idea of visual representation that's what they're talking about or visual diversity people go oh we just need more diversity well what do you mean whose diversity whose representation what are you talking about and it's really important that before personally i believe before you even start the work of representation you first need to know who you are and what you believe so we talk about this idea of holding the mirror do i understand myself do i understand my connection to the world do i understand my sense of belonging so I talk about this notion of the fact that you would perhaps if you own a property you might well value your house if you own expensive jewelry perhaps you might appraise it if you own a car you might get an mot but when are you giving yourself that cultural mot when are you stopping for a moment and going what do I think? What do I believe? What do I see? What do I connect with? And there are many individuals who do not see themselves in any aspect of their life. They don't see the representation that they should see to feel a sense of connection with humanity. The world hasn't been designed in a way that everybody gets a sense of value. And so there are some people who disproportionately see themselves in everything they do. And there are others who go around blissfully well, I wouldn't say necessarily blissfully, it's probably the wrong term, go around just completely unaware of their existence because they don't see themselves. And whether that's in something as superficial as I don't see myself on a TV screen or in a magazine, or actually I'm not recognised and it's impacting on my ability to be recognised within the health system and a diagnosis, the very fact that representation penetrates everything that we do, we have to acknowledge that we need to allow people to be seen and to be heard and have that sense of inclusion. But I'd go further, because sometimes when we think about representation, people think that that's where the work will stop. So as long as we represent some voices, as long as we give some people a chance to be seen, that's where we're done. But we then need to push forward and think about actually, but then is the diverse representation there? Are we allowing for nuance and intersectionality? And when we get to that point, what we also need to consider is the harmful nature sometimes of how representation can be manipulated. So what can some happens in a problematic nature is, is that people will go, well, actually, well, you've got representation now, so the job is done. Now, without us becoming political, people might go, well, you have a person of colour who is your prime minister. The UK is inclusive. But we have to understand that just because you have a person of colour in a position or in a role doesn't mean that they should take the burden or the fact that they even do the work that is benefiting the very people that you might perceive them to be represented. We talk very much in our community about this idea that kinfolk don't always make skinfolk, or should I say skinfolk don't always make kinfolk. So it's really important to understand what that notion means. And it's about understanding that yes, representation is important. Yes, it's important that we see it in every aspect of life, but we also need to be critical about that representation. And are there any problematic natures or impacts that we need to consider or, or kind of almost um, dissect in the conversation? Hmm. And again, that's it's it's interesting because, well, first of all, the, the word inclusion is a different, another one of those sort of difficult words. We use it without thinking about it, um, and holding the mirror is really an interesting one because I think certainly the students that I speak to in first and second year, that's the one thing they struggle with, 
And I think these types of confiscations is hugely important, not only the value of education in people's lives, but having the space and the time to discuss that, as well as having access to and influenced by um, people who have vastly different perspectives to show um, that you can be multiple ways, um, that the idea of identity is fluid, it's, but it's also stable. And I, I think that's really quite important. Um, in terms of Representation Matters, because I think it's a great organisation, how, well, how, how would you describe the work you do? Can you can you give us a little insight into the types yeah, of things of you do? Obviously, you mentioned Hold in the Mirror, that would be excellent. Yeah, so representation as an organisation is very much committed to helping other organisations, institutions and schools on their journey to culture change. So our, our main ethos, our main work is about how can we support you to change the culture within your organisation to truly present a, an environment of inclusion. We are very much rooted in race and very much rooted in education. And the idea behind it is actually, are you challenging your culture to see what those changes need to be? So we use a number of different ways to do that. So whether it's us delivering keynotes, whether it's workshops or CPD delivery, whether or not we're delivering lectures or we're doing panels or podcasts, it almost doesn't matter too much that the forum or the format, but the core purpose of what we're trying to do is the change in mindset. And it's about allowing people that opportunity for reflection is about giving them the knowledge, the tools and the skills and then taking them on that journey of transformation. And it's understanding that it's important for us to meet people where they're at on the journey. We understand that for some people, they're very entry level, beginning to understand themselves and what this means to them. We understand that there are people who are, you know, critical scholars at the other end who are able to have lots of debate and understand, understanding of what this conversation means. But wherever you are on the journey, we want to kind of be there to help you to process what that means. And so we are kind of a part of that kind of change management process within yourself and within your organization, helping you to go on that journey of change. Excellent, great stuff. Okay, moving swiftly on because I just noticed the time. Um, <laughs> if anybody is listening, please please submit your questions. Um, we will have time for that hopefully at the end. But I've got plenty of questions here to get it through, um, and we're going we're to look at. I think young people because I think obviously I spent a long time working with youth and young people as did yourself. Um, both of our professional journeys um, have sort of encompassed various roles. Um, you talked about being a teacher. You started in law as well, I believe. Yeah. Um, you know, most of the time spent working with young people. So I noticed in a recent podcast with a grassroot, an excellent grassroots organisation called Integrate about the significance of um, identity roots, um, and certainly something that came out for me was this idea of being rooted and this idea of identity. Um, and I never really thought about it in, in some ways. Obviously, being Scottish, my name is Johnston. I have a very rooted in, in Scottish culture. Um, I, I can go to where my ancestors presumably came from. And I just wondered if you could tell me a little bit about that, about the importance of identity, but also the importance of identity in relation to injustice and also mental health and well-being. I know it's a lot encapsulated in there. But just thinking about identity and how identity and roots connect with mental health and well-being for the young people that you, you come across, you've worked with, uh, or potentially young people that people are listening to now. 
Absolutely. I mean, certainly as an assistant principal, one of the key things that I noted working in a school where majority of the children were racialized as black, but actually the number of children who were first or second generation, I could see a complete significant difference from those who were fourth or fifth generation. And ultimately, what I would see is from some of the children who and primarily from Somalia, the children that I was working with, having that understanding of your tribe and your culture and what it means when they were coming to the UK and they were talking to me and going, Miss, this is the first time I'm being called black. This is the first time someone is so focused on my race. This is the first time I'm in these environments and, and people are questioning me and saying, where do you come from? And I'm not being addressed by who I am and what, what is important to me and, and certainly my nation and what I stand for. People are just putting me in a bucket and they're just saying, you're black. But understanding its significance and understanding your tribe and your culture created a sense of power and empowerment and embodiment in who they were. Understanding your name and your legacy and being able to challenge some of the structural inequalities or some of the histories that they were being taught because of they knew who they were. Watching that and viewing some of my students who were um, Black Caribbean, perhaps, as, as a comparison, and listening to them talk and go, but Miss, my surname isn't really Thomas. And I, I can't trace who I am. And am I learning now in school that my family were on a plantation and that we were enslaved at some point? Well, what does that mean for me? And almost searching for a sense of connection. But Miss, when we're here, they're telling us we're not British. They're telling us we don't belong here. If I go back to the Caribbean, I'm told I'm foreign and I don't belong there either. So, so, so where am I? Where do I create connection? And almost creating more opportunities for grooming and for harm for those young people because they didn't know who they were didn't have a section of connection or identity and therefore then looking to, to music and media as a way to find connection because they just didn't know who they were. And there was something for me about that identity connection that I could at least form by being that visual representation for them. And I give you two prime examples of this. There was a student whose mother, this was a girl, and unfortunately her mum didn't have time to do her hair. So she she had braids in, her mum had taken her hair out and she had her hood up. And we had a rule in our school that if you had your coat on, you would be put into detention. And she was adamant, I'm going into detention, I, I refuse to take my coat off. I'm like, let, let me just take you away, something else is going on here. I take her into my office and I'm like, help me to understand. Her hood, I knew immediately what it was. Her mum hadn't combed her hair. Her hair was an afro texture and it was out and there was no way she was going into class and she'd rather have the detention. Now, as someone who understands the culture and the connection, well, what did I do? Well, I clearly got a comb and I've got hair products in my drawer. I take it out. I came over her hair in two plaits. She can go into class, no detention needed. That immediate connection of identity, that understanding, I could help her. When I have a student now in the height of Black Lives Matter and he walked in and I said, are you all right? And he looked at me and he's like, Miss, you already know. There was nothing else that we needed to say because already that identity, that connection, we're on the same page. Miss, we don't have to have this conversation. I don't need to explain to you. You understand my anger and my pain. And so there's something about how all of these things are affecting our children's mental health and well-being. But if the educators are not having the lived experience and they're not going out of their way to seek understanding of that disconnection for some of our young people, it ends up with them being punished or going down the wrong pathways just because someone doesn't understand their disconnect with their identity. Imagine what it must feel like to learn that you are a descendant of enslavement. Imagine what it must feel like to learn that you don't ever know what your proper surname is. What must it feel like to not have a real connection with who you are and what's important to you? How do you even begin when you don't know where you've come from?
And I think that's a real problematic nature of our education system. And therefore, we don't understand why the projection may be what some of our young people are experiencing. And I think that word connection is hugely important. Uh, how, the word relationships used quite a lot in educational terms, but the idea of connections means something different. It means something different, I think personally, for making connection with people, with someone in front of you and what that connection is and trying to recognise that. I think that word connection is, is absolutely excellent, but that's tremendous. Uh, we're now moving just past seven, so we've got, we've, we've got through a few of the questions, but there's plenty others. Um, and thank you for those who are putting in questions. Um, they're, they're excellent. Um, moving swiftly on from that, um, let's perhaps keep with young people, but how can we ensure young people are better represented? Not only within think, education, but more widely. I think the reality is it comes back to a, a point I talk about all the time, which is honesty. It's about honesty is the best way that we can better represent the future. If we think about life in regards to the fact that we take the mobile phone, how much has the mobile phone changed in the last hundred years? If I told you, show me a car from a hundred years ago, what would you show me? And yet if we look at education, we're still teaching children in the same way as we did a hundred years ago. And I talk about this idea of the fact that people challenge the education system and say, it's not working. But actually, as I've said, Craig, and you've heard me say before, the education system is doing exactly what it's designed to do for those it's designed for. It's not broken. It's doing exactly what it's supposed to do. But if we genuinely want an inclusive education system, it is about disrupting the status quo. And if we genuinely want to make a difference for the children coming up now, be it those racialized as white or those racialized as black and brown, we have to actually look at what are we educating our children now to make a difference for the future that they're about to go into. That's where we have to start. What seeds are we planting that we hope to harvest in the future? And so there's a real important part about allowing our children to be part of that process. We sometimes forget that there's a massive generational difference. And McKinsey, um, as a research think tank, they talk about the fact that the biggest difference at the moment is not gender or ethnicity, but it's generational difference. And because we are living longer, it means that our values and our principles and ideas are staying longer. Are we having enough space and time to listen to what the next generation want? Are we understanding how they see the world? Or are we still projecting our ideologies of how we see these conversations from our upbringing and our education? If we want to be innovative and creative, then we have to understand what the innovation and the creation that the young people now need in order to be the people that they truly want to be. Rather than holding them back with an archaic system and traditional opinions and, and values that will just perpetuate the same problem. We want to see change that we've got we're planting. And that has lots of ramifications for not only school exclusion, but also school attendance of young people being interested in what they're hearing, what they're seeing, what they're doing. Um, and that is a great way to look at things like engagement and strategies for schools and educators. And, and I just wonder, and I suppose this is a side question, appetite for change. There doesn't seem to be a lot of appetite for change at the moment from people potentially who have got the power to make change happen. Um, and I just wondered if you had any thoughts about that. Have you have you seen or is there any strategies for engaging people who have that particular power that you would you would advocate? It's a difficult one. I don't expect uh, to answer it. It's anything. a loaded question, Craig. But the, yeah, the reality, there is appetite for change. I don't think that there mm. isn't. But I think it's being honest about how much change do we want. So 
I'm very aware that in 2020, off the back of the murder of George Floyd, and we think about Black Lives Matter movement, we think about the fact that people are at home in an environment where they were engaged. It was podcasts, it was TV programs, it was articles, we had time. If you're listening now, and you were to really reflect and do a review, are you still as committed to this anti-racist conversation as you were in 2020, 2021, 2022, 2023? And the reality is we'd all like to say yes, but we know that we're experiencing what we call racial fatigue. We've got tired. We've not got the same stamina. There are lots of things going on. The world is open. We've, we've almost reverted back to where we were before, almost the status quo. But when we think about true change, we have to acknowledge the privilege that's in the system. So we often hear the phrase white privilege, or we might hear the phrase structural advantage. And I'm not talking about privilege in terms of finance and poverty, because that's a different conversation. But what we're talking about here is structural differences that people are afforded because of their racialized um, connection and understanding, the positionality that they have in this geographical context. There is something really important for us to understand. Those who have privilege and power, do you really want to see change? And how much change do you want to see? And actually, if the process of change means that you have to give something up. Are you still willing to do it? Because the very notion of privilege and perhaps giving someone a voice and an amplification might mean that you have to step back. It might mean that actually you're not going to get that promotion because actually that same money could help a program that means that five junior members of staff who are racialized as black and brown can get an opportunity. Is, is that OK? It might well mean, for example, we're going to do a conference but actually we're gonna change the panel of people. And so therefore the academics that are going to be there won't be five, five white men. Instead, it's gonna be a real variety, but that means that four white men are now losing their spot. Is that okay? It might mean you're writing an article, but you change the order of whose surname is first. Is that okay? And I think the reality with all of these questions are, what is our individual as well as our collective responsibility to acknowledging our privilege and appreciating the change that will need to be made? Because I think a lot of people will put it on the system and go, but I can't change the system. But we are the system. And all the individual things that we do is almost like a beautiful mosaic of change if we will just take our piece of the puzzle and make a difference. You have to be willing to say, how many chips do I want to put down? Hmm. I think you answered that brilliantly. And you also brilliantly swerved the loaded question there. Uh, <laughs> 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 I didn't mean to be loaded, but I think you've, it comes back to that looking in the mirror, holding the mirror again, that idea of honesty. Um, and I think that to me is, is tremendous. I suppose it's what you see, as you say, what you see looking back at you um, and also what's behind you and, and things like that. So um, let's move on just swiftly if we can. Um, I think we've, I think we'll go on to, yeah, the more, we're not worried too much about, um, well, we've answered the idea of power. So what, what do we need to do to make sure the next gender of educations are anti-racist? You've touched on that um, throughout, but I wonder if there's any definite key messages that you would leave with the educators who are here, here this evening. I think when we look at it purely through an education lens, when we're talking about the next generation, then every facet of it has to play its part. So when we talk about educational governance, then we need to make sure that the governance are embedding this in everything that they do. We have to think about those who are writing our textbooks, designing our exams, those who are our academics, those who have that influence at that level. Are they looking at the work for a racialized lens? That is something that they would need to do. We think about the curriculum, but what are we actually teaching our children? 
What content are they receiving? What information are they getting? What seeds of knowledge are we imparting on all of our children to be part of what we hope to be a much more globally inclusive world so that they understand that they are a global citizen of the world? It's also important for us to think about our new trainee teachers that are coming through. Think about the teacher teacher training program. Do we have an inclusion models embedded? Because it was only in the last two years, certainly when I worked with UWE and we looked at reviewing a new module that we designed for inclusion, it was the first time that trainee teachers were even doing a unit specifically looking at marginalized communities, thinking about anti-racist practices in education. And how can it be that sometimes in some instances, those trainee teachers knew more around this work than some of the teachers because they hadn't had that training within the CPD within their school. They were almost more equipped, more aware. It's about giving people the knowledge and skills that they need around language. Do I understand the construct of race? Do I understand what racism means? Do I understand the practical application of it? It's about giving people tools around nonviolent communication. How do I hold people to account? How can I be assertive? How do I be an upstander? How am I possibly a bystander? Do I understand when it's my place to step in and when it's my place to step back? Do we give people the skills so that they know how to call people in and and how do they call out situations? And all of these things are simple tools that we can have in our our, our knapsack, essentially, that we carry around. And we know when to pull them out in accordance with the different situations that we're in. But I'm going to keep coming back to the same point, which I always do, which is that until I do the work on myself as an individual and I'm even open to it, then it's going to be very hard for us to make the changes in education because at every layer of education, we need to be tackling this. It can't just be grassroots and it can't just be at a strategic senior leadership level. It needs to be happening at every level so that when we come here, we see an overall cultural change in education. But we still got a very long way to go. Yeah, I agree. In terms of universities, um, is it different for universities? What role do they play um, in potentially supporting anti-racist practices and policies? I think what's really interesting is that universities really led the way in terms of the path of decolonization. And I think universities have the opportunity to model this conversation around decolonization so it doesn't become tokenistic. And instead, it's actually something that can be embedded. They can truly see, well, what does this look like from a university academic perspective? We're going to first of all hold our, our lenses there because we know even within academia, we can see some of that privilege. We can certainly see racialized difference. We can see institutional racism that can exist. How are we tackling it at those levels in order for that to trickle down within the education system? How are we working with further education, secondary, you know, primary and early years? When we think about our teaching schools and we think about our education department, are we centering the knowledge that they're about to impart? I talk about this idea that teaching is the best profession in the world because ultimately we teach everybody everything. It has to start with us. Mm. So when you think about the power that exists within a university to drive change through every aspect of society, are we using those opportunities? We talk about this idea of being anti-racist, but are we just picking and choosing when we want to be anti-racist? Or are we truly looking at every aspect of university life through that lens? It's not just about the experience in the corridor, the cafeteria, or having a, you know, an Afro-Caribbean society. It's about understanding that these racial differences it penetrate in every aspect of what we do. And are we willing to make the change to truly embed culture change? Or are we just doing tokenistic things to appear to be making a difference? Is it purely performative or is it genuinely embedded? And of course, that links into what we were talking about earlier in terms of the young people and mental health and well-being. 
um, and closing the gap in attainment um, that, that is, is a growing problem and had been an existing problem for quite a long time at university. Um, we're moving on to quota past, and I've got about four questions left, but I think, if you don't mind, um, we can move to some of the questions from the audience. Absolutely. Is that, is that fine? Because um, we've got some popular ones here. Let me see if I can go. So thank you for everybody who's um, put in questions. There's actually more than I thought there were, so apologies for taking all of So the first question um, is from Jess. As educators, after holding the mirror to, mirror to ourselves, do we have a role influence in encouraging young people to hold the mirror and how? So as Absolutely. educators, after holding the mirror to ourselves, do we have a role influence in encouraging the people to hold the mirror and how? Absolutely. And one of the, the best things you can do is about curating your understanding of yourself and then modelling it with our children and young people for them to begin to see their own identity. One of the activities, and I'll share it briefly, that I do within my training is I, I get individuals to kind of go, what are the four words that you would use to describe yourself? I get individuals to really think about, well, what would those four words be? And whenever I do mine, I will put black woman, mother, educator. But what I began to realize is that I was using nouns to describe myself and other individuals are using adjectives and verbs. So they were using things like, I'm friendly, I'm happy, I'm kind. And the reality is understanding how you see yourself in the world and where you position yourself helps you to therefore understand how people perceive you and for you to model that with the children that you're working with. Talking to the children so they can understand society's social construct whether that's a racialized, whether that's about sexuality, gender, whatever it may well be, but allowing space for those conversations to take place. It's about even having the conversation. We don't allow enough of that to happen within education. And whether you're in early years, primary or secondary, it's about taking those PSHE kind of tutor time, circle time opportunities to talk to children about every as everyday aspects of life and asking them, what do they see? What do they feel? What do they sense? and using stimulus to create those answers so that you could begin to test, what is the culture of my classroom? What TV programs do they listen to? What music do they hear? How are they interpreting this? You know, young children, which doll do I pick up and which one do I not? In primary school, you know, them talking about who are your heroes and who isn't. When you're getting older, you can have much more nuance around the conversation, but it's about you understanding your identity, the things that your core beliefs and values, and create an opportunity for your children to explain to you what theirs are and seeing where the gaps are for those children and what other experiences they need to have. Excellent. I hope that answered your question there, Jess. That was the most popular. Um, an anonymous person has just put a question into, which is equally popular. So where organisations are starting to have representation and leadership, is there any advice on how to support those individuals so they are not burdened? Yeah. And the, and the number one um, thing to do in this is to have a real culture change. It's about not burdening in an individual and it becoming tokenistic, but it's being very aware of what are the cultures in the school, what's the systems, and it's to test it. So it's about saying, actually, what responsibility are we putting on that person of colour or those people of colour in representation in terms of leadership? What jobs and responsibilities are we giving them? Are we perpetuating stereotypes by giving them EDI, pastoral and behaviour? Or are we giving them opportunities to experience other aspects of school life without perpetuating those same stereotypes? Do we have systems in place for trauma that may well be taking place or um, emotional activation? So, for example, are we providing opportunities for them to see a counsellor or a therapist if that's something that they require and they need? 
are we creating opportunities for not what we call safe spaces, but brave spaces for conversation and challenge? Are they structured conversations that can take place? Do we have a system in place where there's distributed leadership so there isn't a disproportionate amount of responsibility? Even if that individual is not seeking to be centered, are you aware of it and centering perhaps their lived experience, even if they've not explicitly said, to make sure that you're looking through the lens of racialized leadership, what must be the experience of a senior leader racializes black and brown in our school setting? What would they experience on a day-to-day -day basis? Almost do a leadership kind of pursuit and go and experience from the moment they walk in to how parents engage to what they would see on the website, to the curriculum that they would be overseeing, what experiences might they be having? Are you allowing opportunity for them to have conversations that naturally take place, certainly just in your management meetings, where you're just going, how are you? How is your lived experience? What does it feel like? Are we taking opportunities to avoid things that could make life much easier? So things like, do we phonetically spell everybody's names? Are we asking people how they want to be racially identified? Do we have a clear shared language and policy? The main thing is about having systems and processes that make this situation so much easier. So what we're not doing is having that person having to raise the situation each and every time to bring it to your attention. It's about celebration and joy. We've talked a lot in this conversation about some of the negative aspects, and that's important, but how much celebration and joy is taking place within this process? How much opportunity is there for the representation to take place in a positive way? And are we celebrating that in our physicality, in our environment, in our books, in our resources, in what's centered in terms of assemblies and conversation? Are we allowing that positive aspect to also come through? Or do we still working with a negative deficit of just pain and negativity? Do we provide the positivity, the creation and innovation also at the other end of the spectrum? Yeah, I completely agree in terms of the joy. I think that's important. It's maybe my fault for being a little bit too negative as a social... No, 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 it's fine, but it's important to mention the joy. I think you're absolutely, absolutely right. We do have a tendency. So just touching on that, actually, the next question that um, has become popular, um, how do you feel about a teacher telling a student's parent that they should only speak in English to their child and not their first language? I would not be happy about that. I'm just going to be very frank. But I caveat it with this. I think what I would have to understand, and certainly if I was the senior leader in that position, I would be like, help me to understand why you would be explaining that to a parent. And often I think what it is, schools are under a lot of pressure, particularly with children who might have English as an additional language, particularly if their home country, um, they haven't had the language acquisition. And it's almost like, but we just need them to learn English. So if you speak English at home, you're going to make our lives easier. But the reality is, if we do, if we look at the research around children who can speak multiple languages, children who are linguists, their brains work faster, their brains work differently. So the fact that you can speak multiple language, actually, you're likely to have a greater sign of intelligence than a person who can only speak a singular language. But I think what's important for us to also understand in this conversation is the superiority that's been put upon the English language. And so this idea of centering, you need to learn English, English has the, is the priority, and it would be really good for your child if you do that. We have to question, are there any indirect, unintentional, or even potentially ten intentional, racialized undertones with this. And that's what we need to check. Now, I am aware, and I won't name any names, but I am aware of some, some private schools, for example, where it's been quite explicit, where even the parents have requested, I only want my child to speak English, because they really want their child to get the acquisition of the language quite quickly. 
Um, and I've certainly witnessed that happen. But I think for me, I think it's quite problematic, potentially, if it's got a racialized undertone, why we'd be saying to a parent, only speak English to your child. I think as a school, if we have the right systems in place, particularly around EAL and ESOL support, then I think actually a child can still be learning their home language whilst also learning the acquisition of English and still be able to be equipped in terms of their understanding. I think we just need to be mindful of the intention behind that comment. Excellent. So moving on to a question from Carl, how much do you think black people recognize that resilient and feeling uh, resilient and feeling they have to achieve in everything is crippling them. I don't think they all do. I really don't. I think for many people, racialized as black, it's become the status quo. It's almost like a desensitization. It's just what we have to do. Um, I talked literally to a, um, a black head teacher today, and she was beating herself up because she made a mistake on a public um, comment she put on Twitter. I said, don't worry about it. I said, we all make mistakes. Like it happens. You should know, but as a black head teacher, I have no room for mistake. This is a head teacher who was saying this to me. Somebody who has had to work very hard to get where she, but the fact that she made a mistake, I could literally see the fear in her face because she had made a mistake on her Twitter feed. And so I do feel that sometimes black people are not recognizing and not appreciating the damaging effect it's having on their mental health and well-being by maintaining the status quo of, of this idea of we have to be resilient, we have to do more, we have to work five times harder. But at the same time, I say that to say this, we still live in a system where there is racial hierarchy. We still live in a system where white supremacy and white oppression exists. So I understand equally the pressure of teachers who go, but if I don't, I'm not going to make it. And if I don't, Nobody's going to be there to pick up the pieces. I am one of very few. Everybody's looking at me. I don't have the opportunity to make a mistake. My entire community is relying on me to get it right. So I can talk about what I would like from the heart, but I'm also very aware of the reality of the existence. And I talk from a very privileged position when I sit here and say, you shouldn't be doing that because I'm not in school anymore. But when I was an assistant head, was I that person? Absolutely. I look back at how I used to live my life. I'd be the first one in and the last one out because I felt this extra burden, I had to be resilient. But I look at the situation now and I go, I was contributing to the perpetuation and unfortunately, what did I model to any other black member of staff coming up? Did I just add to the problem? Next question from Laura. Um, this is in relation to university fees because there's lots of question marks at the moment about what's going to, ha with, to happen with the university fees, whether they're going to go up, whether they're going to stay the same, whether they're going to be looking to get abolished. And I think if, if there is a change of government, um, then that's going to be a big question. And usually and disproportionately, they will affect um, minority groups and disadvantaged groups. So Laura asked the question, how do you think the changes to uni fees will affect minority representation in higher education and the corporate world? I think the, re the harsh reality is if fees continue to increase or even stay as they are now, the gap's going to continue to widen. And that's the harsh reality because people just do not have the finances anyway. And we know that the wealth gap is much wider, particularly for those in terms of um, communities racialized as black. And so they won't even be able to afford to have the education. 
The knock-on effect of that is that there won't then be the pipeline going into corporate spaces because there will be less black people making it through at an academic level, which these universities need to produce, which these corporate companies are looking for. And then it's just going to widen the gap in terms of success. You almost go, is this being constructed? I almost am a cynical mind going, is, is this intentional? Because is it doing what it's designed to do, which is widen the gap and separate who can afford? And that's a very cynical perspective that I'm having. But I have to question when changes are made and you look at who is disproportionately most impacted, you can't help but go, but is this by design? Or is this just um, a poor consequence? I would agree. Um, and of course, it touches on what we were um, discussing earlier about the systems and structures that are put into place. So um, an anonymous question, um, we've, got, we've got spoon for two more. Um, how can we make representation part of educational policy in schools? Because they feel that as teachers that desperately need the education. So how can we make representation part of educational policy in schools? I think, I think the reality is we have to first reckon with the fact that we even think it's important. And we talk about the fact that we often look to governance or educational governance to make the decision. And actually, what I don't think is we've got time to wait, because the reality is if we're waiting necessarily, for example, for Ofsted or the DfE or whoever to make some of the decisions that we want to see, it might take too long. So when we think about schools, particularly academies now, having much more power about what they're delivering within their school settings, much more power around their curriculum, we have an opportunity at this point to be impacting from the bottom up what we expect to see in terms of representation within our school settings. And whether that's visual representation in terms of diversity, or that's physical representation in terms of resources, if that's the way in which we are implementing our curriculum, we now have an opportunity to make representation part of those policies and processes. But what we also need to make sure that in terms of central aspects, so for example, when we are writing policies, everything from the, you know, a job application, HR and onboarding, to the policy in terms of our curriculum design, the books we're choosing and what aspects of the curriculum we focus on, are we doing those equality impact assessments? Are we looking at it through a racialized lens? Because that's where that embedding of policy will begin to happen. But it's also making sure that we, again, as individuals, even see it. We have to see that the representation is missing so that we can, first of all, begin to make some of those differences and see the change that's necessary. And that's something that we need to make sure that we do. Excellent. And the final question from the audience, and again, thank you to the audience for putting in so many questions. Um, within your organisation, do you find organisations to inspire, you know, the work of your organisation to inspire and work with, or do people come to you? So essentially, um, do you find organisations want you to inspire them a particular kind of work, um, or do people come to you looking for particular things um, for you to do? Um, so think, this person wants to create a similar space for gender inclusivity. I think the reality is um, you do end up getting known for particular work. So I have a body of work that has related to the, the design and the direction of representation matters. So everything from the BBC documentary to the TED talk to writing the book, the podcast, most people associate me with conversations around race, conversations um, around education and certainly we then as a team have built upon that knowledge and opportunity to create what we currently have in our current um, organization so there is a lot of work coming towards me naturally because of the the kind of the reputation I have within the education space 
But what I would also say, there is something about going and seeking the change that you want to make. So I will absolutely also, as an organization, look for opportunities of change, opportunities to have collaborate and opportunities to make difference. So I think if there is someone there that's very interested in gender inclusivity, I think there are a number of ways that you can do that. So things like podcasts, panels, um, articles, blogs will get your words out there. And that will give people the opportunity to see what you speak about, what you're known for and draw people to you. But I also think using platforms like, for example, I'll plug um, Hannah Wilson and Diverse Educators, go into those organizations who kind of have a catalog of people who do what you do. You can reach out for collaboration opportunities to help you start on your journey. If that's something you want to do for a lens that you're interested in. Excellent. Can I ask a final question that we never got to, but relates to this. Um, so in terms of inspiration for others, so ending on a sort of positive note, um, how do you cope with setbacks and how do you reach your goals? We've got a sort of minute or so left. So how would you cope with setback and how do you, or what advice would you give to people who are listening to reach their goals and how do you achieve Okay, them? so quickly, I want to make sure I get this in. It's your team. Who is in your team? So number one, you need to have a therapist or something, someone of that nature who you can speak to from a kind of um, emotional and well-being perspective. That's really important. A mentor, having someone who is doing what you're doing, but is further along in the journey, who can really kind of reach out to and help and guide you. Number three is having a sponsor. A sponsor is somebody who can open doors for you and amplify your voice. They might not do what you do, but they definitely have the power and privilege to open doors. Number four is a friend making sure that you've got a friend who's your cheerleader. They don't have to have anything to do with what you do, but there's someone who's a cheerleader for you. And then number five is knowing the people in your industry so you know who to collaborate with. So that's really important. But the main thing for me is mindset. I go into everything I do with an abundance mindset. I think first of all, what can I possibly achieve rather than going, what do I need to try and do? I start off with the biggest possible version of what I'm trying to achieve. And I use what we call best case scenario. So in anything that I do, what's the best case scenario that could happen? And I start there. So I start with a very abundance mindset, even in the most difficult situation that I'm in, focus on that first. And that's really important. So I think it's about positive mindset and having the right people with different roles who can really help you on your journey. And that has been transformational for me dealing with any kind of setbacks or challenge or even kind of controversy in and amongst the things that I do. Excellent. And I think that's a great way to sort of bring things to a close. Um, on that note, um, I would just like to thank Aisha for excellent thoughts, insights and time um, this evening discussing anti-racist policy, practice equity. Certainly I'll be taking um, holding the mirror representation and also challenging um, certain spaces and places and, and individuals within those spaces and places to think a little bit differently. I would also like to thank the audience this evening um, for attending, for putting some questions in, and that, to make them aware that this recording should be available in the next few days, depending on technical difficulties. Um, and also to encourage you to put any feedback in that will be available on the link. But I just want to ask Aisha if you any have any final words, any closing words um, that you'd like to give yeah. the audience before we close up. I think before you go, I guess I just want you to think about a couple of things. Number one, having sat in this session with me today, thank you very much for doing so. What did today unlock for you?
for you? That's the first question I want you to ask yourself. What did this unlock? What has it done? What did it reveal? Good or bad? What did you think or feel from today's session? Number two, what will be your legacy? We all in education have an opportunity to make a difference, however big or small. What will be the legacy that you will leave? So when it's all said and done and your educational relationship is, is complete, what will be the legacy that you will leave? And then the final thing is, how much do you want change? Because if you really want change, there may well be sacrifices that you need to make. And so what will that sacrifice be in order to see the change? Thank you very much for listening to me today. I really appreciate your time. It's been an honor to be the first speaker in this new series. So thank you very much to Yui and to Craig for your time. And good night for everybody. And thank you again, Aish. Thank you very much.